some of these fraternity guys were like, you know, if this stuff was legal, I could have put it on my resume because it was the ultimate sort of business training. I was learning marketing. I was learning supply chain economics. I was learning um, distribution. I was learning uh, how to delegate and, you know, even learning how to deal with the law is probably a, a useful skill. Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. You might think of massive drug rings as being run by street gangs or maybe even the mafia. But in 2015, police announced the arrests of eight young men, none older than 25, on charges related to a multi-state drug selling operation centered on fraternities at the College of Charleston. Police seized five pounds of pot, a pound and a half of cocaine, guns, a grenade launcher, and what turned out to be more than three million Xanax pills. It turns out that Xanax was the drug of choice among thousands of college students, and it made millions of dollars for the dealers, until a dead body turned up in the middle of all the action. This is the true crime story Max Marshall tells in his new book, Among the Bros, which reads like a movie waiting to happen. Marshall is a writer from Dallas who pursued the story after seeing friends fall victim to Xanax you'll find it amazing how many people in this story were willing to talk to him. Max is also a gifted musician who, through a lucky break, befriended the rock star Steve Miller and has played with him on stage. He tells us that story too. Here's our conversation. Max Marshall, maybe let's just start here. Could you describe how you got into the story in the first place? Sure. So I was in college at the same time as a lot of the guys in this book from 2012 to 2016. And while I was there, I saw a pretty shocking amount of Xanax flying around. Um, People were using it kind of before tests and things for anxiety, but even more so it was a party drug. So um, you could mix it with weed, Coke, all sorts of things, but most commonly it'd be mixed with, you know, five or six Keystone lights and you'd black out. So yeah, it was this sort of blackout party drug. And I didn't feel warned about that at all heading into school. I knew, you know, parents spent a lot of time warning you about weed or or whatever it was, pot or dope, I guess they probably called it. But um, yeah, there was really no warning just how bad news Xanax could be. Um, it's incredibly addictive. It's one of two drugs where you can die of withdrawals. And I saw this playing out. I had friends who were dealing, friends who were using, and then friends who were starting to drop out of school because of the amount of Xanax they were they were taking or dealing. After school, I became an investigative journalist, and I was wondering, is there a way to tell this sort of as a, a crime story, not as like an eat-your-vegetables-themed story on drugs on college campuses? So I, I Googled, I think, verbatim, Xanax bust college fraternity. And the first result was this piece in the Charleston Post and Courier about this group of guys was nine people six of them were in fraternities three ka's and three saes um they had got caught with a pound and a half of cocaine half a dozen pounds of weed an assault rifle a grenade launcher they'd had cars confiscated and then it said they'd been found with forty-four thousand xanax pills and then i started doing some research found a defense lawyer 
who told me it was actually a few million Xanax pills. And that's when I knew there was, there was something there. So this all happened at the College of Charleston, although this, this College of Charleston network was sort of the center of a network that supplied drugs to a lot of other schools. But could you sort of describe what that place is like? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing to say is I think it was rightfully named the most beautiful campus in America a bunch of times. It's this sort of jewel box campus in the middle of this jewel box city. You know, it's the oldest municipal school in America. So you just have this sort of like, it's almost like New England meeting the deep South, Spanish moss and the vines. And, you know, the notebook was filmed there. So it just has this sort of storybook draw. And uh, that draw brings in a lot of really wealthy kids. So uh, I felt like every other person I interviewed was from Greenwich, Connecticut. There's just so many Greenwich, Westchester sort of kids. You also have kids from these sort of old Southern families, you know, Memphis, Atlanta, certainly Charleston, even, you know, Fort Worth. So you just have all this sort of out of state money flowing in. But then at the same time, you have, you know, sort of in-state schools from you know, lower income backgrounds or in-state kids from lower income backgrounds, there's a real sort of culture clash. A lot of that plays out in Greek life. A lot of the wealthiest kids join one of, you know, three or four fraternities or three or four sororities. It's often described to me as like a separate campus. They live in off-campus houses, often that their parents, or not often, but sometimes their parents would buy them, you know, like a million dollar house or, you know, be four kids living in this sort of million dollar house next to a corporate lawyer with a BMW and they would all get their golf carts and drive around. And people call it Camp Charleston. It's got this like summer camp feeling. Or some of the New England kids call it boarding school without the nerds. And it, it's got the the gender ratio is something like, you know, three girls to every guy. I can understand why a lot of kids from Greenwich would want to go. Yeah. And in that enclave of, of College of Charleston, there's like, kind of as you said, like the circle within the circle, which is the Greek life. And, and your book centers on these two fraternities in particular, the K's and the SAEs, Kappa Alphas, Sigma Alpha Epsilons, which have big reputations both on campus and sort of nationwide. Could you sort of tell people who might not be familiar with either of those fraternities what their reputations are like? There are two dominant Southern fraternities. Both of them sort of came out of the Civil War, KA at Washington and Lee, SAE at Alabama, and they've always had these incredibly strong Southern reputations. Uh, some people call SAE same assholes everywhere. For the any lawyers for SAE listening, I don't condone that uh, the acronym. <laughs> and KA is it is known for being incredibly Southern. They call Robert E. Lee their spiritual founder. You know their book, The Varlet, has a lot of sort of uh, Confederate influenced lore. Sort of that sort of. Uh, Knights of the Lost Cause sort of uh, narrative at the College of Charleston, like I was saying, SAE, a lot of people called them the best fraternity at the College of Charleston. They kind of could recruit those Greenwich kids I was talking about and those kids from the old Atlanta families. KA was known as sort of a mid-tier fraternity. Uh, it was more kind of Southern guys, small town guys, and then some guys from Southern towns. They didn't have the party budget. They didn't have the sort of uh, top three sororities trying to mix with them in the same way. And that you see that dynamic really play out in the the way the sort of drug, drug rings unfurled. Yeah, it, it seemed to me a fraternity is sort of a natural structure for a drug operation in much the same way like the mob would be or a gang would be. Could you 
kind of talk a little bit about how we'll get into the the actual characters here in a second, but just sort of how a drug ring out, out of a fraternity might operate. Sure. So, so yeah, when the, when the arrest happens, uh, the Charleston police chief sort of took the podium and, you know, there's all the drugs on the table and the assault rifles and there's photos of six figures of cash on his, on the plasma screen. And he says, you know, these guys knew each other, they worked together, but they were not thought to be part of a gang. And that's obviously an incredibly loaded phrase um, because, you know, in some ways there's a, a pact of secrecy in fraternities, there's uh ritual, there's a style of dress, there's punishment if you step out. In this instance, there was crime and to some extent violence. So in that sense, like, yeah, what does that comparison even mean? On the flip side, it wasn't a centralized ring as much as it was like a Cutco, Mary Kay, uh, Herbalife, you know, these sort of multi-level marketing schemes. A, a lot of the guys described them to me as ba- it was basically a pyramid scheme. Like you would have a guy who could buy Xanax off the dark web for five cents a pill. He'd resell it in bulk for 50 cents a pill. The next guy would sell it in smaller numbers, a dollar pill. And then by the end of the supply chain, you found, you know, sort of the dupe student who was buying it for $10 a pill. And yeah, all these, some of these fraternity guys were like, you know, if this stuff was legal, I could have put it on my resume because it was the ultimate sort of business training. I was learning marketing. I was learning supply chain economics. I was learning um, distribution. I was learning uh, how to delegate and, you know, even learning how to deal with the law is probably a, a useful skill in uh you know private equity or whatever you go on to do in that sense it was a pretty modern business operation sort of the central figure of this book is this uh kid i want to say kid he's in his 20s named mikey schmidt he's sort of a forrest gump figure to me in that like he's in all these different worlds where you're like how in the world did he end up there could you kind of describe a little bit how he worked his way into all these places and how he kind of wound up in Charleston and in the drug business in the first place. The book opens with Mikey having just finished his seven, seven inch growth spurt. So he was five foot zero until 18. His voice hadn't changed. And then right before college, his senior year of high school, he has this, his growth spurt and he, he shows up, you know, five, seven kind of new, deeper voice. But while he was in high school to sort of, you know, have to make up for being the smallest guy. And, you know, it'd be, I can't even imagine how incredibly hard it'd be to be 17 years old and, you know, have your voice be as high as the girls you're trying to date. Or he had sort of developed this just incredible confidence and sort of uh, social intelligence that he brought to the College of Charleston. Yeah, he, he joined KA. By the time he showed up to school, he was already dealing uh, weed and fake IDs. He had a pretty good fake ID operation going, which very much helped his sort of prospects, I think, in fraternity rush. School just got away from him very quickly, stopped going to class when he was rushing the fraternity. Then as a pledge, there wasn't really much time for class. He was dealing weed. He was selling these IDs. And by the end of freshman year, he's out of the College of Charleston, back home in Atlanta with his mom and stepfather. And he started working ballet at this nightclub called the Tongue and Groove, which is very well known in Atlanta. Uh, it kind of is this place where do- lots of different Atlantas congregate. You have 
the pink polo bros, but you also have bachata night and hip hop night. T.I. would go there, Justin Bieber. And Mikey was just, he was just a ballet guy, but uh, he started dropping little goodie bags of, of his weed and sort of the VIP customers, cup holders. People in the, uh, when they're pulling their car up, they're always like, oh, I want little Mikey to park my car. He was kind of this legendary mascot. He sort of fell in with this rap uh, collective, the 808 Mafia. This is Waka Faka Flame, and this is sort of Atlanta trap at its peak. Next thing you know, he's going to the studio with pretty famous rappers. He's going to Magic City, the famous strip club, and you know they're taking him up on stage and sort of hazing him, either through his family or through a man named Uncle. We never really know who Uncle is, but there is a, a cocaine source, a white guy who's connected to cartels named Uncle, plugged him into the cocaine world in Atlanta, and he started bringing cocaine from Atlanta to Charleston, to this College of Charleston drug ring, to the KAs he was still very close with. And then the KAs would give him Xanax from their sort of drug ring, and he would bring it back to Atlanta and then sell it to Ole Miss, Georgia, USC, all these different schools in the Deep South. And this sort of uh, cycle of cocaine from Atlanta, Xanax from Charleston, weed from a bunch of different sources kind of started churning through these fraternities. And he was the one guy in this whole group of the people you talk about who seemed to be connected to like the really dangerous guys, right? Yeah, exactly. So when the time came and people started flipping on each other and the police sort of unraveled the drug ring, everyone else could flip on someone because, you know, if you flip on your SAE brother, you might be breaking, you know, the code of being boys with someone, but you're not risking your life. But if Mikey flipped on an Atlanta cartel source, uh, that would be his life. So that was, that was very much, uh, that very much shaped the way it all played out in the end. He comes off in the book as obnoxious in some ways and obviously doing some terrible things, but also as, as you mentioned, he's sort of super charismatic and charming in a lot of ways. Uh, you talked to him a good bit for this book. Did you feel some of that as you guys talked? He had a, you know, I, I talk about in the book, he had secret cell phones smuggled into to prison. And so we were able to, to talk a good amount. Sometimes there were breakers that would sort of break up the cell reception and he was super grainy. But then, you know, by the end we were FaceTiming. He's an incredibly charismatic storyteller. He's one of the few people from this drug ring who's also paying the consequence of what happened. And so there's the sort of the depth of what he's been through. Just it it rings a little different. But yeah, it's you, you certainly get pulled into the Mikey verse talking to him. And it's uh, it's quite a place to be. I went to, you know, a big Southern school, UGA, and I knew that there were a lot of drugs around. I knew that the fraternities use drugs, but I have to say, and maybe it's just my age, I was unprepared for the level of drug use just like day to day and at these like massive parties and things like that, that, that went on there. And I was just sort of like my jaw hung open a couple of times when you wrote about things like well, you can give any example you want, but I was thinking of some of these like mountain weekends that they had, which just seemed like these, I don't know, you, you, tell, you tell us what it, what it was like. Yeah, I mean, so the, the first story I heard when I started reporting this was actually through a, a friend who went to College of Charleston, 
it was it was like a night on the Jersey Shore, and we were sitting and, and drinking. And she just started. She was like, "Oh, you want to write about the College of Charleston? Well, let me tell you about this Mountain Weekend. All the fraternities at College of Charleston do Mountain Weekends, sort of in the fall, where the fraternities ask sorority girls as dates. The dates paint these sort of customized coolers, fill them with well liquor and beer, and then they'll go rent cabins somewhere." ostensibly in the mountains although SAE would just go to the woods by this lake in in Georgia I ended up interviewing enough people to kind of tell it as an oral history in the book the sort of Greek life chorus is sort of a recurring thing in the book yeah I mean the story starts with uh the drug car hitting a deer and then like blood getting everywhere and then them having to tow the drug car and then they show up and you know there's vomit everywhere and it kind of feels like oh this is just like a normal college story but by the end uh everything in the cabins is uh on fire and there are hunting knives in the walls and a, a forest ranger is way above his pay grade and yeah i mean shit <laughs> got out there are crickets flying around and out of a hummer or out of some like biblical prank yeah i mean even in that because that's in the second chapter of the book but you can already see the sort of like in in that party alone it was uh Coke, shrooms, acid, Xanax, and uh, like I said, an unbelievable amount of uh, cheap bourbon. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it all flowed together. Well, that that leads me to the the thing. One of the the notable things about this particular case is that there's a dead body at the center of it. Uh, this young man named Patrick Moffley shot to death uh, as part of this all this stuff that was going on at the time, not the mountain weekend, but this is back in Charleston. And you mentioned that you had done an oral history thing about the mountain weekends. Well, you do another one about Patrick and this is not until about two thirds of the way of the book that you find, you finally learn about this guy. But when you finally find out about him as a reader, it turns out like he was the biggest party beast of all. And it was astonishing to me that his parents and family and everybody involved talked about this openly and clearly and kind of knew what was going on. Could First of all, describe this guy for our listeners. And then maybe if you could talk a little bit about if it took much convincing to get all the people in his life to, to tell this story. Sure. So yeah, Patrick Moffley kind of, he grew up in one of those sort of a family in the low country that a lot of people know. So his dad is a, a massive real estate developer. He developed a lot of the biggest homes in Kiowa Island. His mom's this sort of perennial candidate who served on the Charleston school board and then ran for Congress and is sort of always in the news, you know, for some election cycle. They He grew up on this, this massive equestrian farm on what's literally called Paradise Island. And, you know, you drive in and there's just these beautiful sort of show jumping horses and you know you're you're right on the water and there's a pool and there's a half pipe for Patrick and I mean it's it just I mean it did seem like the paradise place to grow up but Patrick as, as his parents would describe him he was kind of a pirate like he was always getting kicked out of school he would sort of he got kicked out of school for creating a fake MySpace that I think made his teacher out to be a Nazi and then created a website called gobacktoohio.com and then even in middle school, he uh, he robbed uh, a weed dealer. So he got sent on Outward Bound and did so well in Outward Bound. Outward Bound wanted to hire him. And, but then just he kind of came back and was this sort of 
surfer party boy. He threw these like 600 person parties out at the farm. There are a lot of stories about him. You know, he would be like on the balcony of a bar on King street. He would see a beautiful woman on the street, a beautiful woman on the street. And he said, I'm going to get her number. He'd jump off the balcony. He'd shatter his ankle. The girl would rush up, say, are you okay? He would get her number and then go to the hospital (laughs) and then date her. But, you know, and he would get in all these fights. He was just in some ways was this, like you said, sort of legendary party beast. So many people in Charleston knew him. So many people I talked to said Patrick Moffley was my best friend. Um, he also really struggled with depression, anxiety, addiction. And he would have these long periods where he would get in trouble with the police and would sort of disappear from the social scene. Um, sometimes for a very long time. He moved to Europe for a while. Beyond the first Friday of spring break 2016, he was found murdered. He was holding a Chipotle napkin to his chest uh, where the bullet wound was. His body was surrounded by hundreds of these uh, counterfeit Xanax pills marked GG249. But all that's to say, to answer the second part of your question, people were incredibly ready to tell Patrick Mockley stories. I think there was a sense that he was directing a movie of his own life the whole time almost casting this legendary figure so that one day someone could write an oral history about it. That was, you know, half of the reporting. But then, of course, you get into the homicide and and that became a whole completely different thing. When we come back, Max Marshall talks about why some fraternity members feel like they're impervious to trouble. But I can go hard seven nights a week. I can get a DUI, I can deal drugs, I can do a lot of things, and I'm still going to be taken care of in the end. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, You can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Max Marshall. Something I thought about as I was reading all these kids taking all these drugs, and Xanax especially, which is meant to be like sort of a mood-shifting, you know, pharmaceutical, is I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of the chicken and egg nature of this stuff. Like, are are a bunch of these kids depressed and needing something and they find these drugs and they get hooked? Or are they taking the drugs and then having withdrawal that makes them depressed? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, kn- I know it's in both directions, but do you feel like there's any, like, pattern to that cycle? Even before I started reporting this book, just seeing my own friends struggle with Xanax, I think I just realized there was this current of social anxiety that was really running through this ostensibly fun party atmosphere and crippling a lot of people, me included. I mean, I have, I have very bad anxiety. I get 
panic attacks. Just looking at a lot of the guys in this book, and Patrick Mockley included, who just their families are so well off that their safety net is a hammock. You know, like you can just chill in that hammock and it's not even like, oh, if I mess up, I have a net to fall into. It's like you don't even have to get out of the net if you don't want to. Still, these guys are really, really struggling with really profound social anxiety to, to the point where it's like, are these parties fun or are they just sort of the social status Olympics where everyone's being like, oh, I'm in the fourth best fraternity and I'm trying to talk to a girl in the second best sorority and everyone's looking at me. And when you're in that mentality, Xanax is often described to me as an opt out pill. It's like I black out on Xanax. I don't have to think about that stuff anymore. And whatever dumbass thing I do, people can just say, oh, well, he was blacked out on Xanax. And so I do think it is a response to profound anxiety. But like you said, it creates withdrawals. It makes the problem worse. The hole gets bigger. And in fact, like Xanax is designed for panic attacks and sometimes used for seizures, but there's never been any evidence that it's good for daily anxiety. Certainly when you're mixing it with weed and Coke and a bunch of booze, like it's not going to be good for your anxiety. And so, yeah, it, it makes the problem so much worse. And that's when you see, you know, withdrawals and, and all sorts of other things. I want to dig a little deeper into that, what you mentioned about there being a safety net for these guys. You have a great line in the book where you say, let me make sure I got this right. As long as you're one of the boys, you can usually go as hard as you want without having to learn anything. Um, can, you, can you just describe a little bit sort of what their safety net consisted of? When I sat out to write the book, I had this like eat your vegetables concept of what what it's about. And it's like the consequence of a life without consequences. And it's this idea that kind of no matter what you do, no matter how hard you hit your head against the wall, you're not going to get a concussion because there's the the family lawyer that can come in. And then there's the fraternity sort of insurance. And then there's, you know, no matter how bad your grades, you're going to get the internship. And like, it's not even, oh, second chances, third chances. It's like, there are no consequences. Yeah, if you can hit your head into a wall without getting a concussion, you'll probably just keep hitting your head into a wall because it just feels kind of like, oh, well, this is kind of a crazy thing to do. And almost there's status in it because it's like, look, another kid who's on student loans, they can't go go out seven nights a week. They have to be home studying. They have to you know pay back these loans and they have to figure out how they're going to get a job. But I can go hard seven nights a week I can get a DUI, I can deal drugs, I can do a lot of things, and I'm still going to be taken care of in the end. It's kind of a dark idea, but there's there's a lot of social power in that. It's basically being like, look at what I can get away with that you can't get away with. Yeah, well, that status also gets into, maybe helps answer this, this question as well. You know, as you alluded to, most of these guys come from or came from wealthy families, you know, they had a pretty fast track to a, a, a sweet life, no matter kind of what they did or how it turned out. They didn't have to become drug dealers to be rich. You know, you think of, you know, guys on the street who are in desperate poverty. It doesn't justify dealing drugs in a sense, but you understand why they would want to do it. It's like maybe a ticket out of a terrible life. Is, was it just the status, you think, for these guys that made them? I mean, I know they got richer, but they were already starting from a pretty high spot, right? To me, so much of the draw of fraternities 
and even you know the, what something that pulled me into fraternities and i showed up to college thinking i would never join one is coming from this incredibly structured scheduled suburban existence where you know starting in first grade your parents are scheduling your play dates and you know you're already thinking about your resume starting in fourth grade or whatever it is fraternities sort of offer this this sense of adventure it's like there's sort of this sense of the occult and you're going into you know like this like hazing ritual that's like breaking social norms but even more than that it's like oh yeah like I'm 18 years old, but I'm going to get blackout drunk and I'm going to like, you know, sleep with lots of women. I'm going to just do all these things that like my sort of incredibly sheltered suburban existence didn't allow me to do. And then you can kind of like push that adventure envelope further and further. Like it's a party that starts on the beach and you're drinking on the beach and you're in the sun. And then like you're in the ocean, you're splashing around and then the tide starts to pull you out and you're getting you know, pulled further and further. And then you look around like two hours later and you're in the middle of the ocean alone and, you know, you can't see land. And so I think like that sort of sense of adventure of sort of like, oh, I might be dealing a little weed. Isn't that bad? I'm kind of like the guys in the wire. A lot of people compare themselves to the wire in the, in this. Right. You talk about that a lot in the book. Yeah. 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 And then like, oh, well, you know, what's, uh, what has a way better profit margin than weed? And it's actually much easier to deal. And uh, there's only a schedule for uh, drug law for it. Xanax. And then, you know, so you can kind of see the way that pulls you further and further from the shore. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part is wealth and status, of course, are always relative. So you might feel like you lived in the best cul-de-sac in suburban Atlanta. But when you show up to Charleston... And there are kids who are actual Rockefellers and Rothschilds. And there's kids who are, you know, flying private in from Greenwich or, you know, able to take their pledge class to Aspen or whatever it is. All of a sudden, you're sort of a thousand dollar a month allowance and you're, you know, your nice 1990s Mercedes, they don't cut it anymore. I talked to, you know, there was one kid who told me as explicitly as could be, he was like, I'm from the upper middle class. I wanted to hang out with these rich kids and like drug dealing made up the difference. I had to keep up appearances and that's why I did it. Toward the end of the book, you, you talk about, you list not only this college of Charleston guy, but other deaths and fraternity type incidents, you know, across the country. And you kind of muse for a point and, and think, you know, is this the, the point in time when somebody's just going to like shut all this down? And obviously that, that didn't happen, hasn't happened, and these things have continued. Is that Greek world kind of untouchable? Or can you imagine something that might happen that would really lead there to be some massive change in the framework? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is frats are incredibly good at rebranding. So like, for instance, in the late 60s, the sort of uh, counterculture on campuses they hated frats they were known as like the snooty guys who wore cardigans and khakis and fraternity membership hit an all-time low um then animal house comes out and there's you know this sense of like no no like fraternities we're actually like we we fight the power too like we're hitting golf balls and rotc drills and we like to smoke weed and we're we're bad we're like against the the main grain of culture and then by the 80s, fraternity membership, you know, was at an all-time high. Yeah, when I was in school from 2012 to 2016, there was a there was a moment there where it felt like this was all going to end. Like there was uh, 
a record amount of fraternities being shut down and closed. There were hazing deaths all over the news. It felt like, you know, every month, even this drug bust, like it was like, okay, well, and the biggest drug bust in college drug bust in American history running through the fraternity system. College of Charleston shut down half a dozen fraternities. But then, yeah, as I talk about in the book, by 2020, they had all returned to campus, more or less. And KA's back on campus, SAE never left. It's an incredibly resilient system. And I think, like, in the Deep South and on big college campuses where these fraternities have really wealthy alumni bases and just so much institutional scaffolding around them, I think, yeah, I I really have a hard time imagining Ole Miss without fraternities. I have a couple more questions along those lines, but I want to take a, a quick detour. There are lots of uh, other stories that you've written that are incredible, and I would love to talk about if we had forever. But I do want to talk about your friendship with Steve Miller. written about that beautifully could you kind of describe how that happened and, and what it what it led to for you sure so yeah i mean it was a total stroke of absurd luck and circumstance um steve miller went to my high school in dallas texas 50 years before i did and for the school's 100th birthday he came back to dallas to play a concert and at the time i was a little seventh grade blues guitarist and so they sort of carted me out to be like oh look at your look at this little bluesman and they carted out a lot of other students I think he you know he somebody showed him his like garage band electronic music and then like the seniors who were all in bands played Steve is a a huge blues head I think just kind of picked up maybe on the spirit of what I was doing and you know sat me down the first time we played and he he taught me a a lick that T-Bone Walker had taught him. So Les Paul and T-Bone were sort of his mentors and he's always looking to sort of pass it on. And yeah, he invited me to play the like little centennial concert for, brought me out for fly like an Eagle handed me his guitar to play a solo. I didn't, I guess he like, he put some like lubricant on his guitars to get those slides on fly like an Eagle. you know, where it's like, <laughs> and so like my hand got on and I slid way out of control and, but I, when you're when you're in seventh grade and like, you know, your voice hasn't changed yet and you're playing a little blues solo, there's a lot of forgiveness. It, it, that went well. And then, yeah, a year later, he came back to Dallas and um, invited me on stage for a much bigger show um, at like Jexa, the big sort of like outdoor pavilion there. And then after the show, he was like, OK, we're we're net jetting to Houston. You want to come? And I played the Woodlands and then it kind of just became this this thing when he would come to Texas or I played some shows in New York as well. Steve has a ton of greatest hits, obviously, but it's sort of enough greatest hits for an entire show minus four songs. So there's always four songs in the middle. And so he would sort of bring me out as the, the middle four song diversion. Here's the little blues guitar player and I would play. But yeah, since then the relationship's really deepened and he's just kind of become like a mentor. 
he moved to New York around the same time I did for college. And yeah, it's just been incredibly supportive of like what started as songwriting and then became this kind of writing. And, and yeah, he was, uh, he was one of the first people to read the book. He, uh, he was very encouraging. He, he had, he circled his two least favorite paragraphs. <laughs> we talked about them, <laughs> but yeah, there was a time when I was like a sort of traveling little mini blues guitarist, uh, sitting with the, the Steve Miller band. Well, I've heard you play and you're very good. And obviously if Steve Miller is carrying you around, you've got some skill. Did you have a, a serious decision at any point about whether you were going to write for a living or play music for a living? I mean, I think it was more the death of one dream and then trying to find another. I mean, um, I, so, so yeah, I mean, like writing is incredibly hard. Music is incredibly hard. They're all super hard. But I do think when I got to college, I just even so, as a high school, I went to Berkeley College of Music for two summers and you show up and you think like, well, I'm the best guitar player in my on my block in Dallas. And then the best guitar player in every town in America is there doing their licks. And you just realize good guitar players are truly a dime a dozen. And um, and what I was always more interested in was songwriting. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's what Steve picked up on pretty quickly, too. He had me fly up to Sun Valley, Idaho to record songs I'd written a few times. And like that was often what we were talking about was songwriting. And so it was a pretty natural seg from songwriting to writing i think what i realized ultimately is that i'm more of a maybe more of an observer than a performer like being on stage kind of gave me the jitters but i love being in a room and just watching other people do what they do and you know in the sort of creepy way of all writers just sort of uh logging it in the back of your head for later how do you feel like those two things play off each other i mean there's obviously a lot of music in this book. You're, you know, every time these guys are riding around, you, you're putting in what they're listening to. Um, do you feel like those two things play off each other first in kind of that sort of thing? But also, do you feel like you, you write with like any kind of a musical rhythm in mind? A hundred percent. Yeah. Not to like be pretentious, but yeah, like what the first thing I'm thinking about when I'm writing is like the rhythm of the sentences. Um, it really is important to me. And like, I remember, yeah, even in high school, one of my history teachers, this guy, uh, Wild Bill Marmion, we called him Old Hickory after Andrew Jackson, and <laughs> but he was like, "Who here writes by ear?" And I was the, I rose, raised my hands, thinking I was like, "Of course, everybody writes by ear." And I looked around; I was the the only hand. I I don't know, like, it, despite the fact that we spent so much time talking to other writers, like, what writing by ear even means necessarily but yeah that's it's certainly how i think about it it's just like i'm just going over the sentences over and over and over again until they the rhythm flows one thing to the next and like the emphasis is emphases are in the right place and and it yeah there's like a musical feel for sure that i'm always reaching for and it's just out of grasp i, I always am hesitant to say something like this when i read a book but i will say if this book is not a movie, I'll be very surprised because of the sort of the the story and these wild characters and and you could just it you write it in a cinematic way. Have those sort of conversations started happening already? Yeah, so there's a crazy obviously IP rush in in Hollywood and I think there's even something called right spies where people at publishing houses sort of secretly send book proposals to different uh, Hollywood studios. 
And so before I'd even written the book, just based off the proposal in my notes, Sony Pictures options the the story and I've done a few drafts of a screenplay and they're talking to a director right now. Who knows if it'll happen? I mean, it's just the inverted pyramid between books that get optioned and books that become movies is uh, so it's a wild ratio, but I will say it, it definitely helped with interviews. <laughs> like once, once the book had been optioned and there's a little story in the Hollywood reporter, all of a sudden, all these guys who had no interest in talking for a book were kind of reaching out to me like, can I play myself in the movie? And <laughs> and then of course you have to do the journalist thing of being like, well, I have no say in that whatsoever. But uh, but yeah, it's so it's already I already feel like playing with house money because that was that was an amazing amazing turn of events for a reporter. Well, that actually kind of gets to the last thing I wanted to ask you, which is if you if you stay in touch with any of these guys at all, and how you think they might react to this book. I could see. Uh, a wide range of reactions here. Definitely. So Mikey, I think, is getting his copy today. I uh, mailed it to Watery Prison, and I have no idea what he'll think. I really tried to do his story justice, but at, you know, at the same time, he's one of 120 sources, and so I'm sure there'll be times in there where he feels like it's different than how he wanted to come across, but I do hope he feels like it was like an empathetic and true telling of his story. I'm sure some of the fraternities will be upset. It's investigative journalism. You know, you can't, there's, there are so many people who don't, didn't want this story out. And, you know, even the fact that uh, a few million pills have been confiscated and not 44,000, that that's breaking news like that, that hasn't come out yet. And yeah, I'm sure there will be people upset that that's, that's out now. But I would think some of these guys, whether they admit it or not, are going to be secretly kind of thrilled, right? Yeah, I've, I've often wondered about that. Like, I one of the first stories I did was for investigating this sort of international drug cartel in, in GQ. And we had sort of solved this case of a, an attack in a nightclub in Saigon. I, In some ways, it was, yeah, it was investigative journalism. It was, it was sort of unveiling that these very particular wanted criminals. This guy who was wanted for murder was on the run in, in Vietnam and had committed this crime. And, and, but at the same time, I was wondering like, are these guys just excited to be in GQ? And I, I have no idea. Like, of course, the, you know, they didn't, they didn't uh, hit me up, but yeah, I'm really curious. Yeah. It is a weird feeling because there is a sense that uh, a lot of these, there's a line in John Cheever in the swimmer that I really like where it, it ends with like, he had a vague sense of himself as a legendary character. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like writing this book is just sort of ratifying a lot of these guys' sense of themselves as a legendary character. In another context, we might call the ringleaders of this giant drug scheme thugs or mobsters. But they're rich, white frat guys. And so it's hard to get our minds around they're doing a lot of what thugs and mobsters do. Max Marshall said a couple of things in this conversation that, when I paired them together, helped me understand this whole mess. First, because of family wealth, these guys lived life without consequences. And second, because they could get away with almost anything, they had to do wilder and wilder things to have any sense of risk. I doubt any of them have thought much 
about the larger consequences of what they did. But thousands and thousands of young people paid the price for their actions. All those young men and women who got hooked on Xanax or whatever else the bros sold them until the addictions ruined their lives. In the end, the dealers were punished for the drugs they were caught with. But the real crime was all the drugs they had already sold, the pills and the damage done. We spend a lot of time worrying about fraternity hazing, but the real abuse was outside the house. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.